the faithful ones in exile that we looked at in Jeremiah 25 last night asked, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And it is accomplished by choosing to stand out for the right reasons rather than blend in for the wrong reasons. And that's the challenge we have before us all this week, to think about what it means to follow God and His ways no matter what, even as rejection turns to opposition, turns to persecution. That's the challenge we have. What a beautiful picture of singing the songs of Zion in a foreign land when there's opposition and when there is increasing demand that we not just go along with but celebrate ways that are contrary to God and His ways. And so the question is, will you be a generation that's able to stand out for the right reasons rather than blend in for the wrong reasons? I feel such a fatherly burden for all of you as we go through this series because as I've been saying every time we've gathered I believe you are facing challenges I never could have imagined facing when I was your age and I believe you will face challenges that I won't have to face in my lifetime and so I so want you and have been praying for you to be a a generation prepared for what awaits but it's good as I said last night It's good that we are in an area right now where it's not easy to be a Christian. There's there's something that comes with a challenge when it's easy to be a Christian. It's easy to blend into a Christian subculture even if you're not real. We'll talk later on this week about the difference between being real and just a cultural Christian. But we've got to have a completely different framework of how we view life, a completely different perspective in how we go about life. My father-in-law is a land surveyor in Connecticut, and it's a fascinating job. So much of land surveying, if anybody, anybody familiar with land surveying? Yeah, it's a, you know, George Washington was a land surveyor. A lot of the, a lot of the founding fathers were. It was, it was a common job for people who were clearing land and creating farms where there weren't farms. And, and so my, my, Father's land, grandfather-in-law is a land surveyor, and it's fascinating because it's so different than being a land surveyor in other parts of the country. Like, think about being a land surveyor, figuring out where you're going to put a plot of land or where a plot of land was that was developed a long time ago. It's so different in a place like Arizona or even California than New England, where people used to put boundaries up by these incredible stone walls. Please appreciate the amazing stone walls we have here in the Northeast. They're amazing. They're beautiful and they're crafted and they're part of our history. But when my father-in-law goes out looking for boundaries, sometimes it's an iron rod set in the ground, sometimes it's a concrete boundary set in the ground. But like I said, most of the boundaries were stone walls. And a lot of stone walls have been moved and, and destroyed through the years. And so you can't even find them easily. And so when he's looking for a boundary, it's like he's a detective. He'll have this map some sometimes 200 years old, that a descendant of the guy who's hired him has given him and says, this is where our boundaries are. This is where our our land is. We need a licensed surveyor to give us a map for this. And so he'll go out looking for the old, there's an old stone wall in this map, but it's nowhere to be found. So he'll go around stepping on stones until he finds one that moves. 
And maybe that's part of the old stone wall where there's one stone on top of another. And he'll do detective work like that. One of the toughest maps he had to try to figure out and validate was a very old map, actually from the 1700s, that somebody said, my great-great-great-grandfather built this land and built this property and made this map. So would you validate it and license that this is indeed our boundary? And it was actually in Vermont. He had to go up to Vermont to do it. And he was looking for blazes. Anybody know what a blaze is? You've heard the basketball team, the trailblazers. You've heard that term. Does anybody know what a blaze is? Where we get that term? Isn't that amazing? We all know that term, but we have no idea what it means. We do, we do that a lot. Anybody know what a blaze is? It's fascinating. When you're staking out a trail or wanting to remember where you went, you take a machete and you put a blaze in a tree. You scar the tree so you can come back and see where your trail was. That's a blaze. You, you create a scar in the tree that, that stays there for good until the tree falls and dies. And he's looking for blazes that marked out a property boundary. And he looked for hours and hours and even days for the blazes on the trees that somebody had put there. And he couldn't find any of the blazes. And he's thinking, am I in the completely wrong area? And he was so perplexed. He went back to his office in Connecticut. And he was sitting in his office looking at this map, remembering all the photos he took, trying to find this trail. And he couldn't find it, this, this property boundary, until he's sitting there racking his brain. And he looks at the date on the map. And it was from the 1700s, but it was in January in Vermont. And he thought, maybe there was a huge snowstorm. And sure enough, he looked it up, there was. He went back, and the blazes were way above his head. Because not only had the trees grown, but the guy who put the blazes did it in the winter walking on all this snow. He had the map, but he needed the perspective of the people who made the map. He couldn't just impose his experience on theirs and figure out where to go. And see, understanding the Bible is a lot like that. We've, we've got to go to it, yes, with our experience that we bring to it, but seeking to understand the experiences of those who wrote the map who gave us the guidebook, who told us these things that we need to treasure in our hearts and have transform us based on their perspective, not ours. We live in an age that I would call is an age of a radical affirmation of personal subjective experience. What we think, feel, believe, experience, that's true, that's real. But that's not the way we need to learn to think. A lot of times, the way we think, feel, our experiences don't tell us the truth. They tell us lies that will send us completely in the wrong direction. And we need to get our heads in the ones of the ones who went through this so that we are able to experience what they did and glean from their experience. It's beautiful. It's vicarious building of our faith through their lives. We don't need to experience being thrown in a fiery furnace or a lion's den or being in Babylonian captivity to learn what they learned. It's a beautiful reality of the Word of God that we can learn and have our faith grow and grow in who we are, developing, developing our convictions that lead to our character, that lead to the course of our lives. And so as we continue to learn from Daniel and his friends, 
we are going to get some great lessons tonight. So once again, open your Bibles, please, this time to Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to learn from these followers of the one true God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for this gathering. It's not a coincidence or an accident that we're here. It's by your providential, kind, sovereign grace. And so we pray that you'd be working in each of our lives in powerful and life-changing ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we pick up our story after Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, as the video said. He had a dream that was deeply disturbing to him. So he called his wise men together, and he says, tell me about my dream and what it means. And they said, uh, first of all, tell us about your dream, and then we'll tell you what it means. And he thinks there's some kind of swindle going on. And he says, no, you tell me the dream. I want to know you really know what you're talking about, and you're not faking it. You could just make up a meaning if I tell you what the dream is. So you tell me what my dream was. And they said, nobody can do that. Nobody has the ability to do that. And so he gets really ticked off, and he gives out an execution command for all the wise men, which includes Daniel and his friends. And so... That ticks him off when nobody can find this. And, and so here's how it goes down. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. He's a wise man. He's discerning. He doesn't just fly off the handle. He doesn't get terrified and run away. No, he, he responds with prudence and discretion. We need to be those kinds of people. To Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, again, he's got a relationship with the king's guard. He's not just always in opposition to these people in this culture. He works within it as well as he can and still has his convictions that he stands by. He had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Again, he's working within the, the culture as well as he can, and he's got favor. Verse 17, Then Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you've given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the great interpretation. 
So there's an amazing favor that Daniel and his friends have in this kingdom that's opposed to him in his ways, but he still has favor, and he responds in ways that are incredibly helpful to us. And there, there are four ways I want us to think about they respond. One, they pray. Then they praise. Then Daniel's a pioneer, and they persevere. So the first thing when this happens is they pray. I love this. That's their response. Their lives are being threatened, and so Daniel's response is to go to his friends and say, pray, verses 17 and 18. Daniel went into the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. This is beyond their ability. This is beyond their resources. They're in big trouble. Their, their lives are being threatened. Execution awaits. And so you could think of all the ways they could respond. Some of you would want to make a list of things to do because that's how you're wired. And, and like, like Judith in the example, strategize and plan and, and figure this out and go into problem-solving mode. And that's understandable. And there's something admirable about being someone who wants to be motivated and fix things. But we've got to step back, especially when we're in situations where we're desperate and say, God, we need you. And there's something good about desperate situations because they get us to the end of ourselves and our capabilities to solve our problems. And we go to God who we always need to go to instinctively, and not just when things are desperate, but as a regular pattern of our lives as people who live in constant prayer. So they pray, and they seek God for wisdom. And when God provides the interpretation of the dream, I love their response. It's praise. You know, what we do when we gather and worship God and express our affections to Him is not just a good-feeling experience. It's warfare. These guys are in a battle. Worship is warfare. What do you think Satan hates more than worship? What do you think demons hate more than worship? I believe when we gather in worship, Satan and demons flee. They hate it. They hate what's happening here this week. They hate what's happening in this moment as God's word's being preached. They hate when you, we gather and you express your affections to God and your adoration of him. They hate that. They don't want to stick around for that. And so worship is warfare. No, it's not just a feel-good expression. It's actually a fortification of our souls and an encouragement to one another as we do it. I've gone to church so many times with a cold heart, a distracted heart, a, a sin-filled heart, and I don't feel like singing. I don't feel like expressing adoration to God and praying and attending to the Word. But all it takes is some sisters or brothers around me who are obviously pouring out their hearts to God in heartfelt devotion. And they don't even know it, but they're saying to me, Eric, let's go. Come on, let's go. I'm going to the presence of the king. You going with me? They don't even know they're saying it, but just their genuine worship and engagement does that. Realize how important worship is. They praise God. In verses 20 through 23, Daniel has this beautiful expression of praise. He responds to God in praise because of God's provision here. But then I want you to notice what a pioneer 
Daniel is. It's, it's beautiful. Look, when he finds out this is going on, he takes the lead in engaging with the captain of the guard and then engaging with his friends. He goes to Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah's house where they hang out, his companions. And look what it says in verse 17. He to- verse 18, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. He's a leader, man. He's a leader. He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And they follow his lead. He's taking initiative. He's taking leadership. And they are following. And I want to encourage every one of you to be pioneers, to be trailblazers, to be people who are willing to take the lead. It's not always easy to do, but we need to do it. God gives them the insight to the de- God gives us insight here to the depth of their friendship. They go as a united front into this battle, depending on God. And what, what I want you to realize is how incredibly God can and wants to use you when you take simple initiative as a minister of the gospel. We'll talk more about this on Friday. But, but please realize, God doesn't want you to just be a follower of Jesus. He wants you to be a leader of others as you follow Jesus. Be an example to the flock. You know, a lot of times you don't even realize how much God is using you when you simply have a life of integrity and take leadership in who you are. I I played football at Central Connecticut State University, and there were some rough characters I played with, man. I could tell you stories about these guys. But I played football there, and one of my best friends was maybe the craziest guy on the team. He was actually Mr. Connecticut. He was a bodybuilder. He was Mr. Connecticut as a bodybuilder, but he was also a really good defensive end. And we roomed together when we'd go away on trips, and, and we just got to be good friends. But he was nuts. I mean, among all the, the crazy, tough, rough characters I played football with, this, this guy, Glenn, was, was the craziest. I mean, everybody would say, I can't believe you guys hang out. You got this straight-laced Christian dude and Glenn, and Glenn hanging out together all the time. But, but he was great, and he, he got the biggest kick out of me being a Christian. He thought it was hilarious I didn't cuss like everybody else. He thought it was hilarious. There were say he was much bigger than I was. He, he would pin me down and start wailing on me, trying to get me to say swear words. It was, he thought it was hilarious, right? And he'd even give me ones to say, and they were usually lightweight ones because he found that even funnier, right? And, and he was just that kind of guy, and he would do just these crazy things in, 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 in games, in the dorm, all over the place. But... I, I tried to tell Glenn about Jesus a lot, and, and I knew some of his story. I knew that his mom was the only family he had. And I knew one day he had come home from high school and found his dad after he'd killed himself. And deep down, even though he was this crazy, funny guy, he was brokenhearted. You know, I have a friend who works with professional and big-time college athletes. That's what he's done in his ministry. And I heard somebody ask Eddie one time, hey, how do you work with people who have everything? How do you tell Tom Brady he's needy? And I'll never forget what Ed said. He said, you know what? No matter who you meet, even the big man on campus, he's just two or three good questions away from crying. You just got to ask him the right questions. Maybe about his dad. It may be about his family. It may be about fears he has, insecurities he has. Every one of us deep down knows we're needy. I'll never forget that. Well, you know, we finished college. I graduated. Glenn did. And, and I didn't see him for, I think it was about 12 years after college. 
And out of the blue one day, he calls me up. And he, and he says, hey, Eric. I said, Glenn, what are you doing? He said, yeah, I found your number. I called you. And he said, you know, you know all I got is my mom. And she's going in for open heart surgery tomorrow. And I wanted somebody to pray for her. And you were the only person I could think of I knew who prayed. So would you pray for my mom? Would you pray for me? I had no idea that in the midst of making fun of me and mocking me, Glenn was listening. And and 12 years later, I'd be the guy to come to mind. And so we have the opportunity to not just be followers of Jesus, but examples to others that when life gets desperate, you're the one they think of. You know, in the normal routine of life, people may make fun of you, they may mock you, they may roll their eyes, they may call you a horrible person because of the things you believe. But when they get desperate, you watch who they come to. You watch who they come to. They'll come to people who are living for something beyond just the weekend, but who are living for eternity. Be that kind of people. You know, I've failed lots of times in this kind of way. When God gives me an opportunity to be a leader, to take initiative, and I've failed. I remember in one day, I failed miserably twice when God was clearly, clearly wanting me to be a leader. I'll, I'll never forget it. Same day. I go out to, to breakfast with a friend of mine, Brian, and we walk in, in this diner at like 5 in the morning. And the lady seating us says, did you do something wrong to me? And I said, no, why? And she said, because people don't smile like at that at 5 a.m. unless they did something wrong. And here's what went through my head. Here's what I thought to say, ma'am. I'm a Christian, and this smile at 5 a.m. is the smile of a man who's been forgiven because of Jesus. That's what went through my mind. You know what I said? (laughs) I said, that's all I said. She sits us down. The waitress comes over, and she says, watch this one. He smiles a lot. On the way out, we're paying the bill. She looks at me, and she says, you're still smiling. And I thought to say, ma'am, that's because I'm a forgiven man because of Jesus, so why wouldn't I smile? You know what I said? (laughs) That's it. And I walked out. I have no idea what what was inhibiting me that morning, but, but I failed in that opportunity to be a leader. That afternoon, I'm at a salad bar. And I'm going through the salad bar. This lady to my left looks at my plate, and she goes, oh, my goodness, you got all those greens. Uh... That's, you're too healthy for me. And I said, well, look at you. You got quite a salad yourself there. And she says this, well, I got my cholesterol tested last week, and now I'm trying to be righteous and holy and pure. And I thought to say, well, ma'am, if that's what you want, you're going to need a lot more than greens. You're going to need Jesus if you want righteous and holy and pure. And you know what I said? That was it. That's all I said. I remember a couple years after that, I was was coming back from a a funeral that I had actually officiated of an amazing godly man who had died. Orton Horn, his name was. And I went into this Starbucks on a Saturday morning after the funeral. And the kid, he was like 17, 17-year-old kid. He says, wow, you're dressed up for a Saturday morning. And I said, yeah, I'm coming through the funeral of a really good man. And he said, well, that's what life's all about, isn't it? Being good. And I thought to say, and God was clearly leading me to say, well, 
Actually, the reason I think Orton Horn was a good man is because he followed the only man who was truly good, Jesus, and trusted him. You know what I said? No, this time I said, I said, yep. Just as bad, man. If not worse, right? Look, I give you those examples because, you know, preachers can kind of try to give the examples of the times we won. Probably at more times I lost than I won in being a pioneer and being a leader. And so I just want to tell you, it's a battle. You can know a lot. You can be at this a long time. Sometimes I do that just because I don't have time. What if this kid wants to get a long conversation? i got to get somewhere else. You know, you can do subtle things like somebody can say, hey, why, why? somebody says to me, hey, why would you take that job out in California when you're from Connecticut? And I want to say, oh, God opened doors and blessed in so many amazing ways and made it clear that he wanted us to have an impact for his glory out in Southern California where it's really needed. And it's so easy to just say, got a job opportunity. Right? It's so easy to go that route. You know, hey, why'd you guys marry each other? It's, it, you know, you, you should say, oh, God orchestrated our lives in amazing ways and brought us to himself and, and then brought us to each other in a way where we knew we would help each other glorify Jesus more because we were married instead of if we stayed single. And he could just say, well, we went to high school together and fell in love. Right? We, we can filter the way we talk and exclude our whole view of life from God's perspective. And so we have, you have the opportunity to be pioneers, to be leaders. My son, Sam, he's, he's pretty shy. My son, Isaac, has never met a stranger. He walks in a room and he takes over the room, right? Sam is very shy. He's a great kid, tenderhearted. Like he, if he sees a dog on the side of the road limping, he'll just cry and want to do anything to help that dog. He's just a sweet boy. He tries to look tough and gangster, but he's a tenderhearted kid. He can't get away from it. But... But Sam, I was watching him for a long time interact with his junior high friends. And it just was, it was nothing but, you know, you know what I'm talking about? It's just, it's just making fun of each other and just being goofy and silly. And, and I'd say to him, you were just with your friends for a day and a half. Did you have one meaningful conversation? No, no. Did, did you ask any questions about how your friends, they're all Christian friends. Do you have, ask, ask any questions about how you're doing in your relationship with the Lord? No, no, no. Sam, I know you've been reading your Bible. Did you talk to your friends about what you've been learning in your Bible? No, no, no. And I'd say, Sam, be a leader. Don't be a jellyfish. And he'd always say, oh, Dad, you know how hard that is. None of my friends talk that way. You know, it's just because you're a pastor. You know, and I said, no, I know their parents want them to talk that way. Do something meaningful, right? And so, so I'll never forget it. Uh, two years ago, my son was a sophomore in high school. And I kept talking to him, anything, and you taking a lead, are you being a leader? And he finally got tired of the emptiness of his relationships, and he asked one friend, hey, you want to get together for just a half an hour on Tuesday mornings before school, read our Bibles together, talk a little bit about it, and pray? And he was afraid the friend was going to say, Pfft. and the guy said, yes, I would love that. I've been waiting for somebody to take that kind of lead in my life. And so they did. And my boy Sam was afraid his friends were going to find out about it and think he was corny. They did find out about it. And they were mad he didn't invite them. And they all wanted in on it. 
And he said, no, you're going to have to start your own, my friend. I have this going. And they did. And his best friend came to him. It wasn't the guy he asked. His best friend came to him because they were the, the max of making fun of each other and being shallow. And his friend said, I've never told you this, but I've always looked up to you, and I'm so thankful you're taking the lead the way you are right now. And is that complicated? Read our Bible, pray, and talk about it a little bit. That's what it means to be a minister. You have the ability to be a minister of the gospel. We'll talk more about that later. But be a pioneer. And and so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar makes this golden image, the dream talked about, that said he was going to be powerful, but that he had clay feet and he was going to go down. And so he threatens to throw these guys in a fiery furnace. And he actually does it, this best-known story, and these three Jewish men get thrown in the fire by Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the verse we need to look at. Uh, This chapter 3, verse 18 verse is the one we're talking about all this week. Look what it says. They say to the king in verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We're not going to bow to this, this God you've made. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But... If not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. God has the power to save us, and we trust him to do that. But if he determines not to do that, we're still not going to bow before your idol. That's courage, people. That's conviction. That's backbone, and that's being leaders. That's what that is. Some of you, more than years ago, have heard of the Battle of Dunkirk, right? Who's heard of the Battle of Dunkirk? Anybody seen the movie? Yes. Amazing story in British history. 3,500 British troops get stuck in Dunkirk, and they're stuck there, and Hitler and his troops are coming, and they, he's got them trapped. They're going to completely get annihilated because they're trapped in this harbor area, and they can't get out, and they're desperate. And they don't know what to do. And certain death seems to await. And an admiral in the British Navy sent back a three-word message by cable to to the nation. It was three words. You know what the three words were? And if not, here, but if not was was the message. But if not, straight out of the book of Daniel. We got some pictures of the Battle of Dunkirk. That, that's, that's a photograph they took. No, no, that's a painting, a famous painting. That's a photograph they took of the Battle of Dunkirk. These guys are trapped. And this admiral sends back a three-word message, but if not, straight out of our verse for the week from Daniel. And the whole nation knew what he was talking about. That's all he said was, but if not knowing he was applying this message of the fiery furnace and these three Jewish guys refusing to bow before this this false god. And he's basically interpreting it for their situation, saying, we're not going to bow. Certain death seems to await, and we're not going to bow. We may get saved from that, but if not, we're still not going to bow to Hitler. We'll go down fighting. That's what he says. Is that amazing? The whole nation knew what he was talking about. Who would know what he's talking about now? Very few people, right? But, but that's the message he sends. But if not, and it revives the spirit of the nation, and it ended up being common citizens went and took their boats and rescued these guys because for some inexplicable reason, Hitler delayed. 
They, they have no idea why he delayed the attack. He could have completely wiped them out, but for no good reason, he delayed, and they were rescued. 350,000 troops from Dunkirk. What a, what a message that they sent to the world, and their biblical literacy enabled that to happen. But if not... And please know that when hard times come, when when rejection and opposition and even persecution come, God's at work. He's sovereign. He's working so you can trust him no matter the outcome. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice in him with inexpressible joy. The tested genuineness of your faith. So often we don't know the genuineness of our faith until it's tested. And so God will bring tests to see if our faith is genuine. And we find out when that happens. And you need to realize that your faith isn't the most important thing. The object of your faith is. Jesus says you can have the faith of a mustard seed, but if it's in God who doesn't fail and is all-knowing and all-good and all-powerful and all-wise and sovereign, if your faith is in him, you will be sustained. You'll have what you need. And I love the line from the video, your majesty, we're ready. We know you can hear us. And we trust you, even when it doesn't seem like he hears us. We know he can, and we trust him because Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And friends, persecution is an unavoidable, necessary part of following Jesus faithfully, and we'll talk about that more on Friday. But what I want you to realize is that as great an example as um, these men are, Jesus is our ultimate example. Let's not get it twisted and make fallen, frail humans who are needy our ultimate example. Jesus is that example. Hebrews 12 says that we are to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross even to the point of death on that cross, despising the shame and is seated as the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is that other one in the fire we were singing about before, I believe. That he's there with them, even in the midst of the fire, and the fire doesn't hurt them. But the challenge here is for us to understand that sometimes things don't lead to the kind of salvation we see in this story. There are plenty of martyrs in the history of the church who weren't saved from the fiery furnace. That's why they say, and if he doesn't save us, we still trust him, no matter the outcome on this earth. Jesus is the ultimate mystery to be revealed. Not wise enchanters or magicians. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, Daniel says in chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Jesus is the mystery that's been revealed to us. And he is the answer to all our greatest needs. So, 
these are dramatic things, and we need to translate them into daily lives, like the way we date and the way we get our entertainment and the amount of time and what we focus on in our social media use and the way we conduct ourselves with the minds God's given us as students or whatever gifts he's given us. But we need to look to examples like 14-year-old Leah Shabiru. She's from Nigeria. Here's a photograph of her. And she is an amazing young lady. She, is, she was 14 years old in this photograph, and not long after this photograph was taken, she, in 110 young girls from her Christian school were kidnapped by Boko Haram, a Muslim terrorist group. Five of the girls were killed in the abduction, and they were taken away. And they were told, you will convert to Islam. You will reject your faith in Jesus, and you will convert to Islam. And every girl did, except for Leah. Every girl got to go home, saying they were now Muslims, and no longer trusted and followed Jesus, and Leah wouldn't cave. And so Leah has spent her 15th, 16th, 17th, an 18th birthday in captivity until she converts. They still haven't returned her. You know, it's, it's easy to look at these stories as, as blazes on a tree far out of our experience, but there, there are 14-year-old girls on this earth showing the very same kind of courage and conviction as Daniel and his friends. This isn't some fantasy story long, long ago. And I, I do. I, I don't doubt that you will be challenged in similar ways in your lifetime. And so, so there's a history of people willing to lay down their lives for what they believed was true about Jesus in the history of the church. And there are still, every day, Christians being persecuted with their homes ransacked and burnt to the ground and killed for trusting Jesus. It may be getting harder in our culture, but compared with other places in the world, it's still not hard. Sometimes all it takes is somebody rolling their eyes at us when we say we're a Christian to get us to wilt and be timid. It's time for God's people to stand and rise to the challenge that's before us of walking in simple daily faithfulness, not being angry opposition to everything that happens in the culture, but being wise and discerning about what we can get involved with and what we clearly cannot. And then we'll have something to offer this desperately needy world. So let's be people who pray and who praise and who pioneer and who persevere. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We need it. We're weak and struggling and frail people. We are people who are easily knocked off course in our journeys with you when even sometimes the slightest distraction comes our way and we just cave at a kid in Starbucks who gives us an opportunity to point to you. Lord, I pray you'd help us to not beat ourselves up for our failures but be encouraged by your patience with us and enable us to be the kind of not just disciples of Jesus, but ministers of the gospel you call us to be. Thank you for these brothers we have in this story that we'll see someday and recount 
their stories and ours together with you in heaven. And we pray until that day that you'd help us to be simply faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name, the one who got us in the race and the one who'll get us through the race victoriously. Amen.